0: Hi everyone, welcome to the last session of um, Rabbi Silver's series on the uh, Torah and Haftarah readings for Rosh Hashanah and Yom um, it's our last session we're going to be talking about the Haftarah of Rosh Hashanah. Um, and of oh, sorry, of course, as always, um, you can put questions in the chat, which I can pass on for you, or you can raise your hand to speak, I'll be promoting you to panelists, um, which does not mean that you have to speak, just that you'll be able to turn on your cameras, we'd love to see your faces, um, and you can raise your hand to ask questions. Enjoy.
1: Um, okay, can we begin, Begin, Chaya? Okay, thank you. All right. So let's begin with Rosh Hashanah. As we've... Uh, pointed out the the Torah readings for Rosh Hashanah say nothing about Rosh Hashanah. Let's begin with that. And because in point of fact, the Torah itself says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. So um, Rosh Hashanah is one line in the book of Ayikra, another line or two in the book of Amidvar. And that's it. It's never actually referenced again. Um, So Rosh Hashanah is a day that is open to, I say, to uh, rabbinic interpretation. And it's a day that is fashioned by, uh, by the rabbinic mind and by the rabbinic tradition. Neither Torah reading, neither the first day of Rosh Hashanah nor the second day, two adjoining chapters in the book of Rashi, chapters 21 and 22, mention, of course, anything about Rosh Hashanah. So that we discussed already, the Torah readings of, of Rosh Hashanah. And what I'd like to do is to talk a bit about the Haftarot. We'll start with Rosh Hashanah and we see how far we get. Um, So first, there's a point in general about the Haftarot. Um, The Haftarot, all of them without exception, are taken from the prophetic writings, all of them. There are no Haftarot from what's called the Ketuvim. Ketuvim being things like Book of Nehemiah, Daniel, Ezra, those books, uh, there are no Haftarot, the, the, the McGillot as well. All the Haftarot are from the prophetic writings. What's interesting, by the way, just uh, in passing, that I had the opportunity to listen to, uh, i listened to a few of the classes that were offering in elbow. Um, and I was listening to Dr. Gaffney's class, and he asked the question about the davening on Rosh Hashanah. Um, and his question was, why is it, that in the prayer of Rosh Hashanah, which consists essentially of biblical verses, that the order of the verses in the Shofrot, the first three verses are from the Torah, the next three verses are from the Psalms, and the next three verses are from the prophetic writings. He asked the question, isn't that a strange order? Because, I mean, he's not the first to ask the question, but, we always talk about Tanakh, Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim, but in the Davening of Rosh Hashanah, it's Torah Ketuvim Nevi'im. So he offered a couple of, not his own suggestions, a couple of suggestions, but I was thinking that actually, a very simple answer is this, that the prophetic writings often, and this is true of many of the Haftarot, not all, but many, the Haftarot were chosen to be counterpoints to the Torah reading, and essentially, one of the main themes in the Haftarot in general uh, are words of, words of hope, words of consolation. Uh, right now, we're in the midst of the almost finishing the seven Haftarot of consolation from Yeshayahu, Yeshiva Dinechemta. But in general, the Haftarot serve as a counterpoint to the Torah reading and leave us with, uh, with hope, talk about a, a, a better future. And that's certainly true of the davening of Rosh Hashanah, the three verses, uh, and we'll come to one of them later, I hope, that appear at the, towards the end of the malchiyot, that is verses number seven, eight, nine. There are a total of 10. The 10th one though is separate from the Torah, it's in the request section. But of the nine verses, the last three are from the prophets, because they're words of hope, words of consolation. And by the way, uh, it's also true of something else where we recite verses apart from Rosh Hashanah, one place where we find a lot of verses being cited is a ritual that is maybe the cordialist ritual that we have, which is the Seder. At the Seder, we are, the, the, the uh, Haggadah presents us with a bunch of drushot. And the strange thing about the drushot, at the Seder is that the verse is explicated by virtue of citing another biblical verse. And what's interesting, there are four verses. What's interesting is the only two verses taken from the, from the prophetic writings. The first of which is the last drasha on the first verse. And the last one is the last drasha of the fourth verse. Um, that's the Damva with Rota Shan, right? That Damva Eshvitim Rota Shan is from the prophet Yoel. And it speaks of a, a better future, a kind of a messianic time. And that's from, the, that's from the Prophets. The rest of the verses are all from the Torah, and there's one verse from the, from the Ketubim. But the prophetic verse that's cited is the last verse. So it strikes me that's true of the Rosh Hashanah Davide, that we want, we always cite the prophetic writings last because the prophetic writings speak of a much better future, a messianic time, a better future, gives us a lot of hope. And especially in the middle section of Rosh Hashanah, which is Zichrono, which is about judgment, But the end of it speaks about covenantal connection to God and speaks of uh, God remembering us uh, fondly. And we'll come back to that hopefully later because that last verse of Zichronot, one might say, and it's somewhat subjective, the key verse of the Zichronot section is taken, of course, from the prophetic writings. It's the last verse in the Zichronot and it's coming from the Haftober of Rosh Hashanah. Anyway, that's just a word in general about the prophetic writings, and in general, they are words of, of consolation. Now, the Rosh Hashanah haftarot are very interesting because neither the Torah readings nor the haftarot on on the face of it, they certainly don't mention Rosh Hashanah. And the question now is what is the connection? If this was chosen by that tradition, obviously. They wanted us to make the connection between Rosh Hashanah and the particular Haftorah. So the Haftorah for the first day of Rosh Hashanah is the uh, story of the birth of Shmuel, the story of Chana. It's parallel to the parsha. The parsha is Torah reading for the first day is Vashem Palkanet Sarah. God remembers Sarah and, and Sarah's child, Sarah as Yitzchak in her old age. And the Haftorah also speaks about a situation where a man is married to two women, one of whom has children, one who does not. Similar to Abraham, he marries Hagar, she has a child, Sarah does not. And of course, the story is familiar to us, I'm sure, that the Chana prays to God, and God answers Chana's prayer. And in thinking about the Haftorah, which is chapter one of Shmuel, and the first 10 verses of chapter two, Let's first begin by taking note of the fact that in the Haftorah there are two kinds of prayers. There's the one prayer in chapter one of Shmuel, and that is one verse all, that Chana prays to God, uh, a very important verse. And that is, is verse, number, um, verse number 11. Chana is crying, and Vatidor Neder Vatomar in chapter one, verse 11. She took a vow, and she said, Hashem tsvaot, Lord of hosts, Imraot if you look at the, uh, the uh, affliction, I would say. The affliction of your servant. Anguish, maybe. What?
0: Anguish, maybe.
1: Anguish, affliction, right. Same along those lines, right? Anguish or affliction, they're both good. Uzekartani, and remember me. Do not forget me, and give your a maid servant, zero a child. I will hand him over to God all the days of his life. show. And literally, a razor will not go over his hair; he won't cut his hair. That is the sum total of Khan's prayer in chapter one. In chapter two, there is a ten verse prayer which I presume can be seen as a prayer of gratitude. I'll get back to that later. And that's the story of Hannah. And uh, Ewi, who's watching her, thinks that she's drunk because um, her lips are moving, but he can't hear anything. He thinks she's drunk, and he says to her, listen, leave this holy place until you sober up. Sober up, you can come back, but leave here. It's inappropriate. And she says to him, I'm not drunk. I'm just embittered. I pour out my heart before God. <laughs> One might say, not what I imbibe, not what I take in, but rather I'm pouring out. And Ewi understands that, he says, but in God should grant your, your request. So the question is for our purposes, not to explore the whole story of Chana, in the book, first chapter of the book of Shemuel, but our task is to see what connections we can find between the story of Hannah's prayer and the birth of Shmuel, prayers and the birth of Shmuel, and the day of Rosh Hashanah as it is understood, or well, one might even say constructed, by the rabbinic tradition. So let me make a few comments about this prayer of Hannah and, and, and potentially its connection to Rosh Hashanah. Um, let me begin by simply pointing out that the prayer of Chana is understood by our tradition to be the central prayer. That is to say, there are many prayers, but the prayer of Chana becomes the model for Jewish prayer. Jewish prayer in the narrow construction of Jewish prayer is what we call the, uh, the, uh, the Amida or, or the silent prayer. And Chana is praying silently, quietly. And we can't hear a word so this becomes for the tradition for our tradition the primary prayer which is very striking and since it's the primary prayer i think it uh behooves us to try to understand some of the elements of this prayer uh, so the so let's begin by positing that the day of rosh Hashanah as understood by our tradition, the Torah says little. The Torah says Yom Truah Yelachem, it's a day of Trua, a day of crying out. Understood rabbinically, a day of shofar. Um, trua is a noise or cry. And the rabbinic understanding of Yom Trua is that this cry is a kind of prayer. So Rosh Hashanah is a day of prayer. On our calendar, there were two main days of prayer. Is Rosh Hashanah and is Yom Kippur. Those are our two great days of prayer. And the prayer of Rosh Hashanah at its core is represented by the shofar. So it's a prayer which has actually no words. It's a prayer with no words. And this prayer with no words in terms of Rosh Hashanah and how it plays out uh, in, our, in our prayers, the shofar represents two different kinds of prayers. On one hand, the shofar is a uh, a trumpet, whatever instrument it is, it's a, it's a, Rosh Hashanah is a coronation ceremony. God is proclaimed king. And the coronation of God, you know, coronation of a king or whatever, there's certain kinds of musical instruments that are played at a coronation, typically. Um, And the Ashkenazim, in any event, before we blow the shofar the first time, We recite psalm Psalm number 47, and that psalm speaks of the entire world uh, singing. Uh, Crying, singing. So it's one aspect of the shofar is that it's a musical instrument. We know that from the psalms as well. shofar Praise God with the sound of the shofar, take our shofar. So on one hand, what the shofar represents, uh, it reflects the fact that the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day of asserting that God is king. And this this plays out in the davening of Rosh Hashanah in many different ways, including in Shacharit, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Chazit begins with the word hamelech. There's a little introductory chant, Uh, And then HaMelech, that's how we start Rosh Hashanah and all the blessings of Rosh Hashanah speak of God's kingship. So one element of the shofar, it's an instrument, it's the music that accompanies the coronation ceremony. That's one kind of, one element of the shofar. But then the shofar has another side to it, because it's Yom Trua Yelachem. And Trua is understood by the rabbinic tradition to be the broken sound uh exactly what kind of broken sound there the talmud discusses that and has three options maybe it's the staccato what we call a trua or maybe it's more of a sigh a shvarim or maybe it's a shvarim followed by a trua but whichever way you understand it uh it's a kind of cry in fact the targum on yom trua says yom yavava they've they've cried so shofar then represents two different things on Rosh Hashanah. It represents the crowning of God as king, coronation ceremony. And then additionally, at the very same time, and maybe even primarily, it's understood as a day of crying. So there's we're the crying out to God, we're pleading with God, there are no words. So it's a plea without words. Um, one might say that the tekiah, the plain sound, Is more in the mode of coronation, crowning of God, and the trua, the broken sound, is more uh, makes more sense if it reflects the cry, the 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 plea. So those are the two sounds of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, and this is the two aspects of the day of Rosh Hashanah itself. It's a day of proclaiming God as King. That's a holiday. That's a happy day. But then there's the other side of it. It's a day of crying out to God. It's a day of pleading with God, even though we don't have the words yet, but we do have we do have the plea. So that's the shofar. And now, in looking at the Haftorah, when we read the story of Hannah, we see that Hannah has two kinds of prayers. In the first chapter, she pleads with God to have a child, and in the second chapter, after Shmuel is born, then we have this ten verse. Uh, prayer in chapter two after the birth of Samuel, which would appear on its surface in any event, not to be a, a, a petition to God necessarily, but more a statement about God. So we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. So let me say on the on the first level, on the, the first point, is that perhaps, and I'll su- make several suggestions over here, and then I'll hear what you have to say. Um, one suggestion is that since Rosh Hashanah is defined as a day of prayer, so we turn to, first, what is the most central prayer in the Jewish tradition? It's the prayer upon which all prayers are based, which is Chana. But Chana, in effect, is two prayers. She has one prayer in chapter one, a petition. She's, she's crying, she's very bitter as she says about herself. I'm an, I'm an embittered person. And then in chapter two, after the child is born, is a 10 verse, I would say, statement about God that we'll come back to. That's the first point. That's one possible connection between Rosh Hashanah and the, uh, the, uh, the Haftarah. Okay. Now, there's something else here about the prayers of Khana. Now, let me jump for a moment to the second prayer of Khana, which is the second chapter. When I was a kid, we had to memorize that. I don't know if you had to, mem- you had to memorize it. We had to memorize um, So it's interesting, first of all, that the prayer of Khana in the second chapter after Samuel was born, uh, one expects a prayer of gratitude for the child being born. But when you actually read those 10 verses, there's virtually very little to suggest that it's related to Shmuel being born. There's one half line there about the barren woman having children. Outside of that, none of these verses appear to be remotely connected to uh, the birth of this child, to God answering her, her prayer. Um, but it is curious that the first verse of chapter two, it begins with Vatit Pawel Chana Vatomar. The book of Shmuel calls this a tfila. It's tfila is often used when we are petitioning to God we're making a request of God so it sounds like this prayer of thanksgiving one could say is not simply a prayer of thanksgiving but there's some kind of petition here as well so let me just reflect for a moment about what the petition is in chapter two now we have to remember that this 10 verse prayer of Hannah is the beginning of the book of Shmuel even though it appears to have little relationship to Hannah having a child, many years ago I was speaking someplace or other, and someone said to me, um, "Listen, um, everybody knows that this prayer could not possibly have been written for a woman who has a child. It was obviously written for some other occasion." To which I said to this fellow, "I said, okay, I'm going to accept that." Except for one thing. But the author of this book put it in chapter two. So it actually heightens the question. Since since it bears a little relationship to Khana having a child, then why, in fact, is it here? That's the question. Wherever, it, wherever, wherever it's imported from, irrelevant to me. It's an interesting question. But in point of fact, it's the beginning of the book of Shemuel. And I believe that a simple answer here, simple understanding of Hannah's prayer. Is actually comes down to the last verse because the the 10 verses over here are a description Hannah's description of the way Hannah thinks God should run the world if you read the description of how the world should run in these 10 verses it's God who breaks the bow of the of the of the of, of the strong ones and the weaker ones uh can operate valiantly. Those that are hungry have food, and those that have food uh, do not. Uh, Those who had many children become bereft, and those that had no children give birth. God, God brings life and takes life. God makes rich and God makes poor. God says Chana will judge the haughty and the wicked. They will dwell in darkness. But But the feet of the righteous ones, the ones who trust in God, God the loyal to God, God will protect them. Barish: persons should not succeed by dint of force and violence. God will judge the world. the last verse and give strength to God's king. Karin Mishikho, and exalt the horn of God's anointed. So the last verse actually speaks of God who will give strength to God's king and raise up the one that God has anointed. So the prayer in the last verse of Hannah's prayer is a prayer for a king, which is why it's at the beginning of the book of Shmuel, which is the book of kingship. It's all about kingship. That's what the book's about. And the claim that Hannah makes, what Hannah believes to be true, one can certainly question this the one who questioned this actually was her son Samuel he doesn't believe it but his mother believes that's how the book of Shmuel begins that this idea of the world in which the righteous people are vindicated and the wicked are judged unfavorably and people that operate with violence will not succeed and those who are who are loyal and pious, they'll get their due due reward. That's what Chana says. The way I know God wants to run the world, and what Chana's prayer is, Chana believes that a human king can reflect God's can reflect God's values. That's what Chana believes. God gives strength to a king who will put in who put your values into play. Remember that the story of Han, she walked into Shiloh, which is the seat of power in the beginning of the book of Shmuel, run by two corrupt priests. It's a place which is utterly corrupt. It's a place which God plans to and does in fact destroy two chapters later. So what Chana is talking about, ozlu ko, And here we come to Rosh Hashanah. Because as we all know, What Rosh Hashanah is about primarily is God's kingship. God is the king. God is king of the world because God created the world, not just the king of the Jews. God is king of the world. The prayer and the third blessing, this messianic dream that the world will be united, come to understand what God demands of us and be able to carry it out. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. It's about God's kingship. But the Haftorah has an additional dimension, which is it's all providing good to speak of God's kingship. But what about us? What about us humans? What's our role in all this? And what Hannah claims is that the role of the human beings is to reflect God's kingship and the role of the leader king is to lead in such a way that the king puts into place God's values. That is what's at the heart of the Book of Shmuel, because her son Samuel believes that's not possible. Her son Samuel believes that no king will ever do this, because when you give for two reasons, first of all, what it takes to become king, all the machinations and the politics that it takes to become the king. And once you do become the king, You are enticed by the power of kingship and you abuse the power. So that's what Samuel claims and he's he's opposed to kingship because it can't possibly work. His mother thought it could possibly work and when you study the book of Shmuel, what you're trying to figure out is what is God's opinion? That's what the book of Shmuel is about. What does God think of all this? Does God go along with it? You made your choice, bad choice. What does God actually believe in the book of Shmuel and the Bible in general, is God's position that human kingship, it may be fraught with danger, but it's not impossible. So what the Haftorah does then is it takes the way it's set up for us by our tradition on this day of God's kingship in the Haftorah, we are reading about human kingship. One might say human responsibility, because that's what Chana is claiming. Chana says, I want I believe that we can put into place a political structure in which the head of the political structure in the Bible, it's the king, can reflect God's true will. That's the claim that she makes. The book of Shmuel is dedicated to this question. Um, okay, so that's basically another reason, I think that, and a good one, that the our tradition has chosen the story of Hannah as the Haftorah. OK, that's the second point. Now there's something else here about the story of Hannah. Maybe at this point I'll stop and take comments and questions then add a couple of other things about Chana. Um The story of Hannah actually, Hannah has a request. Her husband is married to two women. One has children, she does not. And she wants a child. And she is praying to God for a child. And um, she's very, very unhappy, because her, her rival taunts her. Her husband has told her that give up, give up on the idea, it's not gonna happen, he says. You, know, you have me, I'm better than 10 children, he says. He means well, no doubt. A loving husband, but uh, that's not what Hannah wants to hear. And so Hannah is praying for a child. Her request is a very personal request, we can all understand that everybody has things in their lives that we feel are missing. If we only had them, life would be better off. It is true that very often the very thing we pray for to make our lives better makes our lives very miserable. That is true. But some things, sometimes we really understand what we need. We pray for it and hopefully we can, uh, we can be answered favorably. But the point here about Hannah's prayer, I think this is a very important point in general. I think someone raised it in one of my classes recently, and that is that Hannah, what is Hannah really praying for? It's a core question when you study the book of Shmuel, because it's a very strange prayer. If you, if you she calls herself, if you listen to your maidservant and you respond to your maidservant and you remember me, remember me, Don't forget me. Then, if you give me a child, I will dedicate the child to God all the days of his life. So actually, what Hannah does is, after she nurses him, fully nurses him, she gives him over. She hands him over to Shiloh, hands him over to the high priest to serve God under the uh, mentorship of Eli, the high priest. So it's a rather peculiar prayer. If you give me a child, I will give the child back to you. So what is that actually about? And it strikes me what it's about is this, that in the story of Hannah, and maybe this is one of the reasons that that tradition has chosen Hannah's story as the core prayer. What you have over here is on one hand, a pre- she prays for herself, she wants a child. But actually that's not the, the primary reason I think she wants a child. She wants a child because she believes that if you give me this child, And I will teach the child and educate the child and train this child that this child will be able to effect uh, in society a change for the good. Not that her child will become the king. She doesn't expect her child to become the king. It's clear that her child will not be the king. Because what she says is, if you give me the child, I will dedicate the child to God and no razor shall cut his hair. So that reminds us of the Nazir. The Nazir and the king are actually completely opposites, diametrically opposed to each other. The king is the ultimate insider. The Nazir is the ultimate outsider. But the point of the Nazir, like the prophet, is another outsider. But in in point of fact, her child will be instrumental in setting up a better political system. Samuel is the anointer of both kings. He's the Saul and he anoints David. He happens to be opposed to kingship, which is part of the makes the book particularly interesting. But my point is a different point, which is that there are personal prayers and there are prayers for the community. Hannah walks into Shiloh and she understands something is very wrong here. And she's praying to God to allow her to be in a vehicle to change, to change her world. She can't do it herself. This woman is not going to change herself, but she can train the person who's going to do it. If you give me this child, then this child will be able to change the world. And in fact, those who study the Book of Shmuel, of course, know that the character of Shmuel in the Book of Shmuel is based upon Moshe. What she's really asking for is, we need another Moses. We need a Moses to take us out of Egypt because we're in a spiritual Egypt, not a a geographic Egypt. Hele is in in, in the temple. There is a temple, but the temple has become corrupted. God is not speaking, which is typical of Egypt. Exile, God doesn't talk. We have to change the world. So my point is that over here, interestingly, in terms of prayer, we have the confluence of two things. We have the personal prayer, and we have the communal prayer. It's interesting to think about that. Someone is leading the prayer service, or even anybody who prays. We're thinking about our own situation, completely legitimate. But we also think of the larger community, communities in which we live, the local community, the Jewish people, the world, the whole range of communities. And we are thinking about that as well. Situation in the world, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of problems, and we're thinking about ourselves as well. The point of Hanan's prayer is that the two actually come together. She's thinking about her own situation. She wants God to respond to her. But it's not just about her. If it were just about her, she wouldn't dedicate the child to God. And this becomes the vehicle for change in, in, the, in the Book of Shmuel. So that's another reason I think that uh, perhaps the story of Hannah was chosen. The, the assumption I make about Rosh Hashanah, uh, my understanding is that Rosh Hashanah, from the very, from the very beginning, is the great day of prayer together with the Yom Kippur. It's the great day of prayer. There are more prayers, complicated prayers, different dimensions to prayer, but it is certainly one of, if not, the primary day of prayer. So that's another aspect to this, which is in, in thinking of Rosh Hashanah, in the day of judgment, we think of the personal judgment. We also think about the world. And in fact, in the middle section of the davening on Rosh Hashanah, that we call That God is zohir, God is remembering, God is judging. So it talks about God who judges individuals. Every individual was judged. And then if you recall the beginning of the zikhronot, and concerning the nations, it is said, so nations are judged, individuals are judged. So that is a double judgment taking place. And I think the Haftorah invites all of us engaged in prayer to think about our own personal situation, but to try to connect that in some way. So we have to be oblivious to the fact that we live in a big world with a lot of problems. So the, 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 the dual nature of prayer, the personal prayer and the communal prayer, they come together perfectly in Chana's in, in, in prayer. Those are three points. I have a couple of other things to say, but I'll stop at this point. And if anybody has comments or questions about the story of Chana and the choice of this haftorah for Rosh Hashanah, I'm happy to hear, either in the
0: chat or speak up, or unmute.
1: is there anybody who uh, you have wants to say something?
0: Uh, There are no written questions in the chat, but we have a raised hand.
1: Go
2: ahead. Yes. Shalom. Thank you so much. Can you um, elaborate on why you feel Rosh Hashanah is the great day of prayer in opposition, perhaps, to Yom Kippur?
1: No, not in opposition to Yom Kippur. I would put those two days on the same plane. Uh, they're, they're different. Yom Kippur is a day about the human being, our potential, our transformation, and Rosh Hashanah is more focused on God. Um, Khan's prayer is about the way the world should be. It's about God's kingship. God, the way God wants the world to, 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 to run and the human, human responsibility to see that God's will is carried out. That, I think, is... Rosh Hashanah, but I certainly, just from an experiential standpoint, I think we all. I mean, the two great prayer days. You know, you're in, you stand in prayer and you um on kippur pretty much all day, depending where you go. in Rosh Hashanah, just the it's a text it the longer. It's it's a more. It's just a very intense day of prayer. There's no question. So, my point is that I think it's really set up that way. You see on Rosh Hashanah, it's there are more blessings, and it comes down to the shofar, as understood. You know. the way the rabbis understood the shofar. That it's not simply an announcement that today is Rosh Chodesh of the seventh month, which it certainly is in the Chomish, but that carries with it all kinds of other pieces. So I would say that from an experiential standpoint, I think that's clear. I think even looking at the the text, Yom Kippur is certainly that way. It's five different services, all very different from each other. Um, And really the idea of Yom Kippur is a day in which we, you know, typically, I think if we think about our own lives and think about how things are going or not going well, we try to correct it. Um, we should try to correct it, but we don't actually sit down. Most of us probably don't sit down every day and think, let me see how I messed up today or what's going wrong. And Yom know, Kippur, we're actually invited to be to think in those terms, to actually proactively think about what is wrong not just if something happens to hit me that I'm not, that I'm making a mistake or whatever, but to really to go into the depth of our own being. And I would also add that in this confession of Yom Kippur, which is very striking, and there are many confessions, but the law confession of Yom Kippur, the al at the end of it, we, we talk about the various sins we have committed, those that are capital offenses, those that are, you know, fragulation, those that are you know, say those that are rabbi, all different types. And then we say, those that are known to us and those that are not known to us. As it is written, has nishtorot to Hashem evokei, so this week's Torah reading, the hidden things are to God. In other words, the idea that you plumb your own depths, even the things that, that require forgiveness for things we don't know that we did, which means the, the, the Daviding invites us to think, of, think in these terms, to think about what, the, what in fact have I done wrong? We think about that. Even though something I don't know, I'm responsible for things I don't know I did wrong, which is a pretty frightening thought. So I think it's pretty clear that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur <coughs> are the two great days of prayer in it, but they're very different from each other. Clearly, they're radically different days. Um, okay, thank you for that question um, and, and clarification. Um, let me just say one other thing about Hannah's prayer which I think is relevant to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And there's something about this prayer, the prayer is one verse long, and it begins with the words, vati she, she took a vow. The form of Chana's prayer is a vow. Um, you know, I tell you something, I quoted this many times, many years ago at Risha. Uh, so I invited, all kinds of people came to Dresha and speak. So I invited a rabbi named Rowie Madelon, a Rabbi of BJ in New York City. <laughs> and he has very interesting, he speaks a lot about prayer. His synagogue say, not an orthodox synagogue, the synagogue has a lot of music. Um, and the, the uh, topic was music actually. So at the end, after he spoke, I asked the question because I wanted to hear how he would formulate a response. And I said, I know in your synagogue, you have all kinds of music going on. What is the place of music in your service? Is it, is it, is it the central thing? By the way, having said that, you should know that Drisha just came out with podcasts with instrumentals on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is uh, I think in, on uh, YouTube, Drisha, Facebook, Spotify. I would urge you to listen to it. I think it's very interesting. Um, so Roly said, no, no. I love music, it it, it enhances the service, there's no question. But at the end of the day, davening is about commitment. We commit with words, not with music. I like that formulation. And that's what you have over here. Khan is asking something of God, and she understands that if you're requesting something, then it's incumbent to also commit to something. There's no free ride. Covenants are are, are two-sided. If you do this for me, I will do that for you, which is the way the Bible uh, defines a a vow. A vow in the Bible is always conditional. If you do this for me, I will do that. If you grant me the child, I will dedicate the child to God's service. That's the neder. And that's what I think lies at the core of of, of prayer. And it is interesting in this respect, that we begin Yom Kippur service even before Yom Kippur, we begin Yom Kippur with Kol Nidre. And what Kol Nidre is is a ceremonial and the court ceremonial and those those vows that we thought we could take. We, we made commitments we thought we could keep and it turns out we were not capable of keeping those commitments. Something came up, we hadn't foreseen it etc. And the way I thought about Kol Nidre is it's not actually intended, in my view, others may disagree with this, but I don't think it's intended to, um, to warn us about taking vows or about making commitments. My understanding is it's exactly the opposite. What we're saying called Nidre is we're starting the year, we want, to, we want to recommit ourselves to living better this year. And we're gonna make all kinds of resolutions and commitments. And don't be afraid to make those commitments because of the fear that you won't be able to do it. If you really can't do it, there's a way out. But what's important as we start Yom Kippur and talk about repentance, what's important is that we understand that these commitments are essential. So on the great day of prayer, which is Yom Kippur, together with Rosh Hashanah, we begin by, in a sense, making the statement that there there are ways out. If we understand the human condition, people don't always foretell or foresee the future. And the rabbinic understanding, which takes into account the human condition says, if you took a commitment that you really didn't understand the nature of, then we will absolve you from that. But don't stop to commit yourselves in all kinds of ways to making things better, which is, I guess we call that tshuva. Tshuva means I'm I'm, I'm gonna take a different path. I'm not gonna do the same thing. So the choice of, of the story of Hannah then, it's all about prayer in a very deep sense. And what's interesting is that Khana is a prayer. There's no noise, there's no sound. Kalah lo you can't hear. She is saying words, but no one can hear the words. So it's a sort of an interesting counterpoint to the shofar. The shofar, you can hear the sound, but, but there are no words to the shofar. Um, it's a very striking. On Yom Kippur, there are a million words. In Rosh Hashanah, there are no words, because in Rosh Hashanah, we suddenly stand before the king and the king happens to be a judge. And we suddenly have this anxiety that we feel uh, insufficient um, standing before the judge. We have a kind of angst or anxiety and we don't, know, don't even know yet how to respond. Don't have the words, but we, but we blow the chauffeur, which is a reflection of the, of the deepest parts of ourselves that we ourselves have not yet necessarily understood. We can't comprehend exactly what's wrong. We have this feeling that something's not right. We're thinking about repentance. We don't know how to do it. And that's the shofar. So in the Haftorah, actually, you have the other side of it, which is there's no sound at all. At the end of the day, prayer is what's in your heart. Yes, we say words, but at the end of the day, it's the commitments that we make, even silent commitments that we make. So again, the choice of uh, the Haftorah, Haftorah of Chana, say the mother of all prayer, Uh, is a very appropriate one. Let me just say one more thing about Hannah's prayer. Um, And that is that it's interesting about, I mean, the book of Shmuel is written, it's one of the truly great books ever, I mean, it's a book that I love dearly. And when Hannah prays to God, it's interesting that she has one, she has one verse. Three times in the verse, she refers to herself as Amat your servant or your slave. Remember, do not forget, she says. (laughs) So there's a sense of, a deep sense of real humility over here. On the other hand, what is she saying, if my interpretation is correct? What she's saying is, if you give me the opportunity, I will change the world. let me put it this way. She's standing inside the temple. She's standing inside this temple, Shiloh. She looks around. She says, God, I'm standing inside your mishkan. It is utterly and totally corrupt. And the mishkan is the story, the end of the book of, the end of, the book of Shemot, the end of Exodus. We left Egypt. Moshe took us out of Egypt. And there's the, we build this mishkan. I'm standing in Moses' mishkan. And you gave all the instructions. It's utterly corrupt. It is God, in all due respect, a failure. But you know what? If you give me the opportunity, give me a Moses, and I will train that Moses, and we'll build a mishka that actually makes some sense, that actually could work, which in point of fact is the last chapter of the Book of Shmuel, the story of Goran Aravna. It's the last chapter. What chutzpah? The, the Gemara actually picks up on this from another perspective. Chana <laughs> ticha Chana was Chana had a lot of nerve threw things up to heaven and that's what prayer is actually about it's actually about on one hand it's chutzpah you're telling god what 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 you need you're demanding okay you're demanding in a sweet way but what do you mean i need i need this i need this i need this i need that on the other hand there's got to be a recognition who are we to ask in the first place As Avram said, So prayer is these two elements. It reminds me of a poem that the Ashkenazim say one time in the year. The Sfarim say it every Shabbos, but the Ashkenazim say it one time in the year. It's called Aderes V'Yemunah. There are many nigunim we have on the podcast, two very good nigunim for Aderes V'Yemunah. There are plenty of them. And one of the lines in Aderes V'Yemunah that I like very much, it describes God's attributes. Chai Olamin, God is called. Ha You know, it started Trisha started yeshiva in Israel. Yeshiva women learn in this yeshiva in Israel. It's an actual yeshiva, not an Upanada and a big midrash. It's yeshiva, like yeshiva at Haratzion. Real yeshiva. If you go to Israel, you should visit this place. And I was thinking of calling the yeshiva Ozva Nava. I like that. That's what it is. On one hand, it's breaking a new path, it's something new. And you need to have a certain amount of confidence that you can actually do something. At the same time, we always need anava. We need the humility to understand how much do we really know? How much can we really do? That's Ozvi anava, And that's what prayer is actually, that's Hannah's prayer. And three times she calls herself Amateva. So she's well aware of her limitations. Who am I, she says, on the other hand, what I'm seeing is, I'm seeing the world the way I see it with my eyes. I'm standing in, in your temple, which is no good. It's run by the corrupt priests. We got to go a different path. Why don't you give me a chance to do it and I'll do it right? That's Khan's prayer. And that's something to think about on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the, the human stance when we enter into prayer, to think about what we're capable of, at the same time, to recognize our, our, our severe limitations, of course. So, Come, there's more to say. I'll stop at this point with Chana's, with the Torah of Chana. But my point is that all of these elements of prayer are present in the story of Chana. Both the stance of one who prays, both what prayer is about, the idea of imagining a different world. The world is like this. It doesn't have to be this way. It can be different. That's what Chana's thinking is. I, I imagine a different world. To be able to imagine a different world, to be able to step out of all reality and to imagine that things could be better and different, which is not easy to do. So therefore, I think for all these reasons, our tradition has chosen the story of Kana, uh on the uh, first day of Rosh Hashanah. Okay, now let me, uh, let me, let me continue with, let's get to the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Yes, please speak up. Yes, someone. Want to talk there? Okay, I thought I saw somebody raised ahead.
2: No, yes, I, I just had to unmute.
1: <laughs> go ahead.
2: Um, now, when you were talking about Nedarim, um, it, it just struck me that maybe there's a parallel to Vaidar Yaakov Neder More, when Yaakov makes the neder, and he also, he, he wants something from Hashem, but he's also willing to give back. He's, he's willing to make a, a, to build a Beit Elohim, and to give, give back to give God back however you understand it. Every biblical 10 letter or is the same.
1: They're always conditional. They're always, if you give me X, I'll give back. I would say the instinct in prayer is that way. If you're asking somebody for something, you're asking God for something, not that I deserve it, but I'm asking you to help me out. Isn't it the normal human response? If somebody does something for you, you want, you want want you want to repay it, you want to give back? To me, that's comes. That's, that's what it means to be a human being. How can you, right? Someone's giving you a, a gift. When you want to pay it back in some way, do something, commit to something. That's, to me, it's obvious. I don't know, but but they're all that way. That is the definition of neder in the Bible. The, the, the Talmud has a different definition of neder versus shuvah, but in the in the Tanakh, it's certainly that way. I mean, even us, wrong-headed neder. It's the same thing. If you let me win the war. I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Okay, it was a stupid nether, but, it's, but, it's, but, but that's what a nether is. I do not mean it's stupid. I mean, it's if you do something for me, I will, of course, I'll do something back. I, I want to do something back. I want to repay it. I don't want something for nothing. I understand that everything, every time I'm given something, it, it, it involves a counter commitment, of course, it's, to me, that's obvious, and, but they're all that way. And you mentioned Yaakov's Nedra If we had another couple of hours, we would talk about that, because Yaakov—I've and I've spoken about it in the past a little bit—but that story of Yaakov is also central to Rosh Hashanah for, for other reasons. But, but time won't allow to go into that now. Let me just um, let me just talk briefly about the second day of Rosh Hashanah. It is interesting to note, by the way, that whereas on Rosh Hashanah, if we had to pick out one person in the davening the central figure in the Rosh Hashanah Davenim. If you ask me, it will be our patriarch, Avraham. Story Avraham Avinu, who is central to the um, middle blessing, to Zichronot. We ask God to remember the Akedah. Remember the way Abraham was able to overcome his basic nature of of, of being gracious and kind, to do your bidding. So too, you should overcome your basic nature, God, which is to be truthful. God's seal is truth. But God should employ mercies to overcome God's basic nature of Emmet, it's God's basic quality in the Davide, God's seal is truth. Um, so he's the basic person I would say, if you had to pick out one person who's the hero of, y- of Rosh Hashanah, I would pick out Abraham. But what's interesting is when you come to the Torah, Torah and the Torah readings, it's not Abraham. It's the first day it's Sarah. She's a, she's the main Torah reading. The Torah for the first day is Hannah. And the Haftorah for the second day is, uh, is our patriarch Rachel. Rachel Mavaka al-Bwanera is the reading of the Haftorah for day number two. So let me just say something about our mother Rachel in the Haftorah from Yermiel. The book of Yermiel doesn't have that many chapters, which are chapters of consolation. There are pretty few in about a 50, I think it's 52 chapter book. There are a few chapters of consolation. But one of them is the Haftorah, the chapter from which the Haftorah to the second day of Rosh Hashanah is taken. And in that Haftorah famously, so the children of Israel are in exile. And the Haftorah says that Rachel, Rachel was crying for her children. She refuses to give up on her children who are missing? Who are in Nen? That's what it says in the Haftorah, and God says, God says to Rachel, not to cry. God has heard you. God has heard you. God has heard you. Um, and God is, and God is remembering. God and God remembers. Um, but let's let's find that verse actually. It's in Mio, what chapter is that? thirty-one or thirty-two. Let me see if I can find it quickly for the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Let's,
2: let's
1: find that chapter. Thirty-one. Chapter thirty-one sounds right. Um, let's see. Is it chapter thirty-one? Trying to find this now. Yes, it is chapter um, three. Yes, so chapter thirty-one, right? Kol Rama Nishma Tamurim. Verse number 14 of chapter 31 of Yumiyo. Rachel She refuses to give up, to stop crying for her children who are missing. Rachel refuses to, to give up. She's she's the one pa- matriarch who singled out. It's Rachel Mavaka And now God responds, says Yemiyo. So God says to Rachel, stop crying. Stop crying. There is a reward for your actions. Your children will return from the lands of the enemies. There's hope for the future. And then the Haftorah ends. With the following, Shemor Shemati Ephraim date. God says, "I hear Ephraim. I hear Ephraim saying." We translate, bemoaning, bemoaning himself. Ephraim is bemoaning himself. Um v'yashu, but bring me back, and I shall return. For you are oh my God. Because achareshu bimichamti, v'acharehi vodi safapti ayarech boshdi v'yamnichlanti difficult verse, Ephraim, who's Rachel's grandson, Rachel's son as it were, because Jacob adopts them as <laughs> Ephraim and Menashe. So Ephraim's not sure about return. Can I return? Can I not return? Ephraim's concerned. And the last verse of the Haftorah, Yaki Ephraim, God says, isn't Ephraim a dear child to me? A, young, a, young, a newborn that I play with. Even as I speak either about him or against him, sometimes means to speak against, even if I condemn, even when I speak against him, I always remember him. And my, uh, my inward parts are moved for him. I will certainly have mercy upon him. Now this verse which for many people, I think, is the highlight verse of Rosh Hashanah. It's very powerful. And if you remember the service of Rosh Hashanah in the middle section, we call Zichronot. So we have different verses. We have verses from the Torah. We have verses from the writings and verses from the prophets. And there are three verses from the prophets, verses of consolation. Um, the, fir- the first verse is Zohar Chesed ni God, the verse from near I remember the kindnesses of your youth. That's the first verse. I remember that you followed me into the desert, says God. I haven't forgotten that when you were your youngster, a nar, a young person. And the next verse is um, another verse. I remember the covenant I made in the time of Nuriach in your youth, and I will establish a covenant with you. And then the third verse and the last verse of Zichronot before the petition. And that's different actually, because there God is not just remembering the way we were in our youth. Maybe we were teenagers, maybe we were 10, 12, or 15 or 17. But God is remembering something else. The yellow the little the boy, the little plaything. Rachemarachamenu. And the point is, it speaks to a relationship that's very, very deep. Um, and it's part of the way we see the covenant. The covenant's a long term relationship. It has its ups and downs. But fundamentally, we ask God to see us as, as, as little innocent children before we grew up and developed all kinds of other habits. Not even the way we were as, as teenagers or as now, but the way we were Yellow Chashui. Yellow from Yoru, the, the newborn, as it were, a baby. Remember us. And this is the the last verse of the Zikrolob section before the petition. And this is how we intend to overcome the judgment, because God is judging us. But we ask God to judge us not as a, as a as a neutral person who would judge us. We ask God to see us in terms of a relationship, which is very complex. At the core of it. It's covenantal. The blessing is abrit. we see ourselves as the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We see ourselves as the children of our mother Rachel who has not given up on us. It's interesting, and I just conclude with the following Drush. I said this many years ago. It's interesting that Yumio singles out Rachel. Why is it Rachel? Why is Rachel the one who is crying for her children, who refuses to give up? It's what the Torah says about Jacob, Joseph. Jacob refused to accept the consolation. Joseph is a nano. He's a nenu. a but Jacob refused it. So in Yirmiyaw, it's Rachel, who's the Jacob figure. Why Rachel? Why is it Rachel, and only Rachel, happened to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Leah all the others and I think an answer possibly mm-hmm. maybe it's a drush maybe it's not the pshat but if it's a drush it's a pretty good drush I like it very much and I'll tell you why it's Rachel the children are in exile the children are missing the children are not home God I'll bring them home someday but they're not home who can understand what it means to be in exile? Who can understand what it means not to have a place in this world? The people who really understand it best are the people that have no place. We have seven patriarchs and matriarchs. We have three Avot and four imahot. Six of them have a place. Six are buried in Maratha Machvela. Six they find in Hebron. We have the address. Where is Rachel? Meitolai Rachel Badera. Somewhere on Derek, the path to Ephrath in the book of Samuel, Selsach, and afterwards it's called Ramanishma, someplace. Where is she? Nobody knows. So Rachel is a person. She dies on the. Rachel's the, the woman who has no place. Only the one who has no place can really understand what it means not to have a place. What does it mean to come to a country and have no place? Doesn't mean to leave your home <laughs> in a terrible circumstance and try to find a new place to live among strangers, to be seen as an adversary. What does that mean? Who can understand such a thing? The one who has no place understands it very well. And that's our matriarch Rachel. It's certainly the case that when you read the Chumash, I wouldn't say she's the most ethical of the that we have. I think the ethics sometimes border on the dubious, even, the, even our rabbinic tradition understood it. It doesn't matter. We still love her the most. She's our favorite for a very simple reason, because she loves us the most. And that's the way it works. So Rachel Mavaka, she never gives up on us, even when everybody else does. Our mother Rachel never gives up. So we ask God and Rosh Hashanah, don't give up on us. Don't give up on us. Try to see us in a favorable light, even as you judge us. Remember that we're part of a covenant, and we see ourselves as the children of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. So that perhaps is the reason for the choice of the uh, Haftoah, the second day Rosh Hashanah. And you see it's reflected even in the service itself, that the Zifronot end, the ninth verse of Zifronot is, Ha'bein Ya'kili Efrayim. Right, I guess I'll stop at this point. If anybody has a comment, uh, again, I would advise everybody to, we have many good classes still, few still left and in Elu and um, we have the podcast, which you can get in Trisha's Facebook or YouTube, Spotify. I think uh, I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, are there any comments or questions now?
2: Uh, we have a question from Sarah. Yes, Sarah. If I may, uh, again, thank you so much, Rabbi Silver. Um, can you comment on the idea that um, if Hannah is saying, "Give me the chance, and I will help." change the world for the better. Do you think there's any relationship between that and the fact that she has to, so to speak, stand up to her husband and promote what she really wants? And then she has to stand up again to Ellie and say, no, I'm not drunk, but this is what I really want. Does it, is there an implication that you really have to work hard if, you're gonna ha- if you want to change the world? And I have
1: one other quick question. After that then. is certainly the implic not the imp say certainly the case that as far as that tradition is concerned, of course, Chana is surrounded by by very good people. Her husband is a loving husband. He means well. Sometimes those are the most difficult people to live with. Means well, but he doesn't really understand her. He doesn't understand what she wants. She just doesn't want it. She wants she she sees what no one else can see. And that's another important point about prayer. Why is it that Hannah can see what, you read the story, obviously Sheol was utterly corrupt. Tophany and Pinchas are terrible people. They're ripping off God, they're ripping off the people, they're abusing the women, they're awful. And God hates them, and God destroys them. But anyway, uh, but Hannah goes periodically to Sheol to bring his sacrifice, he seems to be very involved in it, big supporter of the temple. But the point is that, that's the theme of the Book of Shmuel. The, one of the core ideas of the Book of shmuel it's what I write about in my book written in Hebrew, Machut Adam, that what allows people, the people on the margins of the people who see, and no one is more on the margin than this childless woman. She's utterly on the margins and uh, and even the people around her have no understanding of her. Not her husband and not anyway, who's a very sweet man, but he has no clue what she's about. And then she, you're utterly and totally alone. And then she turns to God. The Rabbi Soloveitchik, when he talked about the story, what he emphasized actually, and I think it is in the story. I don't think it's at the center of it. So that's what I, what at the center is what, in my view is what I said today. But he talked about a different aspect of prayer, which is dependency. The idea of prayer is you turn to God when you come to realize that only God can help you. That no one's gonna, you know, hardest to understand the other person we don't understand ourselves or the other person. So the fact is, she turns to God after her husband says, listen, forget about the children business. I'm, I'm as good as 10 children. That's what she turns to God and she says, in effect, oh, will you really understand what I want. No one else gets it, you know? But I think the idea of being able to, to see to see the world as it is, to see all its failings, is has to do with being being disconnected from the world in a certain sense. Because if you're invested in the world, we're never going to see it as it is, because we don't want to see it as it is. We have too much at stake. Only someone who has nothing at stake, such as Chana, can actually see the truth. And then the question becomes in prayer, how can one separate oneself, it's impossible actually, to separate oneself from all those connections that we have in this world, which move us towards wanting to keep things the way they are. I don't want to change it. Because if I change it, I might lose this, I might lose that. My boss will like it, my parents will like it, my grandparents will like it, my community won't like it, a hundred reasons. How how does one separate oneself from all of those uh, factors that prevent us from seeing the truth so that we can actually speak the truth? I think that's one of the great challenges of prayer. In the case of Chana, it's not that difficult, but the book of Shmuel is about kingship and there's someone who was completely vested. In in, in in the in the society because the king is the strongest person in society. The king doesn't want to change anything. The king's very happy with, with the way it is. Uh, and that's the challenge to the king because he's got to come to understand that the king just works for God and works for the people. That's what the book of Shmuel is about. So yes, I think that Hannah, her situation allows her to see the truth, which is obvious when you read it. And then she's able to say we got to change. This is not good. Let me see if I can I can be helpful in making a change. And yes, that requires a certain sense of self. There's no doubt that that's what I said before about humility and and, and, uh, and, and strength. That prayer means I believe I can make a difference in the world, in my world, in the whole world, in my life, in my family, in people around me. I believe I can do something. At the same time, humility is the core attribute. I understand my limitations and I may fail also. That's also important. But and doesn't, and and
0: not Rabbi, try. Rabbi Silver, the same with Rachel. Her inability to extricate herself from her home, the fact that she had to, had to do that, there was tragedy in that, and it kept going backwards, but she was yo- human, almost more human than Rivka and Sarah.
1: Right. The point that Rachel in the Chumash is certainly that way. She's torn between her father. She does take the idols of the father with her, uh, and she dies on the path. And then the question is, How does one understand her dying on the path? Jacob chooses to understand it. And maybe I'll finish with this thought about Yaakov and Rachel. In Aftorah, Rachel is presented as a Jacob figure. Yaakov loves Rachel. She dies on the path going back. She dies after taking the trophy. Um, So she dies, one might say betwixt and between. And then the question is, how does one evaluate Rachel? Jacob chooses to evaluate her in the following sense. She was on the way back when she died. And the Prophet Yemiyo just takes it one step further. She is, she is the matriarch who, who, who is so beloved, because she's the one who, she's the one who actually will never give up on, 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 on her children. So there is a process within the Chumash itself, I think, of seeing Rachel in a positive sense. That's what Jacob says at the end of Sefer Bereshit. And of course, Yemiyo. In his prophecy, takes it even beyond that and presents Rachel as the most beloved of all Arab forebearers. Um, Okay, I guess I'll stop at this point. If anybody has more questions, you can email me, Risha.org. I wish everybody a good year to all of us. Uh, we have other classes as well, um, but again, a good year and uh, we'll come back again to learn together. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Thank everyone, you. for joining us. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. I
0: do want to just say we have one more Elul uh, class, which is tomorrow with Rabbi Tzvi Nobic, uh, which is on um, sorry, uh, Sarah, another text that we read on, on Shana, the visitation of Sarah, um, and of course, more things in Tishrei, um, which you can see at elul.drisha.org. Um, as well as I think Ravi Silver mentioned the music um, and liturgy, liturgy, sorry, podcasts, which are really exciting and I urge you to check them out. Um, And yeah, so thank you so much for learning with us and should I tell that? See you all soon.